All right, verse nine. Uh, this is uh, outside of the prophecy. It's an explanation. So the timing in some of the verbs is going to change a bit um, because it's being in, explained from a different point of view. He's taking a break from this big prophecy that he's giving in an, as an explanation to give an explanation of the explanation. Um, so angels are very capable of complex thought too, apparently. But this one starts off in a similar vein as we saw back when we were told about the number of the beast, 666. And we are warned that we are going to need an extra bit of wisdom in handling this. It's not going to be as clear cut or as simple to understand. We're gonna to need to have some humility and patience as we go um, through this. And we are especially going to need to depend on the spirit uh, as we go through and interpret this. So that phrase is, here is the mind which has wisdom. This is a common um, Greek idiom, which basically just means pay attention, slow down, stop and think about this. And what needs wisdom is that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, this has been uh, taken literally, which is generally good practice. Uh, but this is given a double symbolism here. So the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, etc. The kings being the tail end of this chain of metaphors is what needs to be taken literally. This is the ultimate referent, the kings. But there's this odd middle ground here, this seven mountains. So we need to deal with those seven mountains. Uh, now, I'll give you my understanding of this right up front. Mountains probably refers to kingdoms here, and the kings refers to literal kings. Now, often in scripture, a king is equivalent to his kingdom. And that's why we can have this double chain. Um, Adam being the king, the ruler of this earth, when he fell, all of creation fell. When Israel had a bad king, all of Israel was punished for that. When Israel had a good king, all of Israel was preserved for that. Same thing happens when you've got bad kings, for example, in Babylon. You've got Nebuchadnezzar, who is a bad king at first, but he gets converted. God spares his kingdom, and it goes to his nephew. His nephew is a bad king and an unrepentant king, and the kingdom itself is taken away from him. So kings and kingdoms have a very close um, connection. And I think that's what we're seeing here is that close connection between these kings and kingdoms. But they're separated because something strange is going to happen with this seventh king. And it needs to be separated because his kingdom's not going to fall apart, but the king is going to change. And that's going to change through the resurrection, the satanic resurrection. So to show you here that sometimes kingdoms are referred to as mountains, we have this passage in Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 6, said he stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and started, uh, startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. So in this prophetic, uh, or this prophecy in Habakkuk, these nations are referred to as mountains. 
in Psalm 86, we see this one might be a little bit more literal here, uh, but it says, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever, speaking here of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 51.25, which is one of these uh, chapters that correlates pretty well with the destruction of Babylon herself, says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, speaking of Babylon, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt-out mountain. Now, Babylon is not a literal mountain by any means. It's in the plains of Shinar. It's, it's a river floodplain. It's not mountainous by any means, whereas Jerusalem is a, bit of, is a mountain, and in the millennial kingdom, it will be a literal mountain. Its elevation will rise. So sometimes it's hard to make that distinction in the text. Is it actually talking about the literal mountain of the millennial kingdom? Is it talking about literal Jerusalem, uh, which is built up on a mountain? Uh, or is it using this, uh, this common Old Testament phraseology, which equates a kingdom with a mountain? One of the best examples is from Daniel 2.35, which is always the closest in correlation with Revelation, these prophecies from Daniel. And we see uh, probably the clearest equation of a kingdom with a mountain. Daniel 2.35, uh, the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, that's the, the big uh, vision that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel uh, translated for him. They were uh, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there's a little rendering of that. That stone becomes a mountain, and in this vision, that mountain is the kingdom of God that's going to fill the whole earth when that last kingdom is destroyed, that last kingdom on earth. <clears throat> and then it says that these seven mountains are seven kings. So we've got kingdoms and we've got kings. In Daniel 7, 17, we see that sometimes these kings and kingdoms are interchangeable. Uh, these great beasts, which are four in number, this was Daniel's second vision of the same set of four kingdoms, but uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision is a great statue because it's from a Gentile perspective. It'll look like strength and power. From a Jewish perspective in Daniel 7, it's going to look like terrible beasts who have come to um, destroy. These um, great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. But here in verse 23, it says, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. So in the same explanation of the same vision, it's referred to once as a king and once as a kingdom. And that's consistent with how Old Testament especially speaks of kings who are over their kingdom. The whole kingdom comes under their purview. And so um, some have tried to equate these with um, 
with Rome, for example, which at that time, back in the first century, Rome's outer perimeters included seven mountains, seven hillsides. Today, the um, district of Rome has 10 mountains in it because it's a little wider than it was back then. There's been redistricting in Rome since John's day. Um, so there's 10 mountains now. But some say that back in, um, in John's day, Babylon was code name for Rome because they were afraid to speak of Rome specifically. Mm -hmm. I find no evidence in scripture that they were afraid to speak of Rome explicitly. In fact, they spoke out against it quite a bit. It would be odd that here they um, use Babylon to refer to um, Rome when elsewhere they just speak of Rome. The other example is from uh, 1 Peter when Peter says he's in Babylon. And some people say, well, Peter was in Rome, right? That's the seat of Peter, um, the Vatican. There's actually no evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. Peter was uh, actually in Babylon. Peter went to Babylon after Jesus, uh, after the dispersion from Jerusalem, and he ministered in Babylon. Paul went to Rome because Peter was a minister to the Jews, and those Jewish Christians that were still in Babylon after the Babylonian captivity, not all of them came back. He went there to minister. James stayed in Jerusalem, and he was the head of the church in Jerusalem. Paul, the minister to the Gentiles, went to the Gentile capital, Rome. Uh, and so Paul was killed there in Rome. There is no evidence besides Catholic Church history to say that Peter was ever in Rome. So I am not convinced that John is speaking of Rome here. But they would try to say then that these seven kings were seven successive Roman emperors, and the issue was emperor worship. The problem is there are two possible dates for the writing of Revelation. One is in the 60s AD and the other is in the 90s AD, around 95. Uh, 95 AD is the one that I hold to, but both would be a problem for finding seven different Roman emperors, because if it's in the 60s, then you have to end it with Nero, when there's only been four emperor kings, not five or six with a seventh to come. Uh, the problem if you take the 95 AD is you've had over 10. Uh, some have tried to say, well, some of those only had a year-long reign, so we just won't count those. There's no reason not to count those unless you're just trying to make your theory fit. The other issue is, do you start it with Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus? Um, do you start it with the first one who was called a Caesar or the first one who received emperor worship? Um, those are some of the theories that are tried in order to make this theory fit, um, but none of them are natural fits. Um, and so I, I don't hold to any of those. As I said last time, I think this is seven successive kingdoms that have ruled over the earth. Had a, um, and this doesn't necessarily mean they've ruled every square foot of the earth, but that they've been the largest kingdom on earth at that time and had the biggest political sway. And especially, and I think this is the most important, they've directly uh, put their authority and influence over Israel. That's really the center of God's eye, the center of his dealing of nations on earth. It's how is a nation dealt with Israel. And so we've got Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then the future um, government of the false Christ. 
and that comes in two different campaigns. But starting with Egypt, <clears throat> Egypt, we know during the Exodus period, it exercised its authority over Israel. They went down there for a safe haven or harbor. God used it to grow them into a nation, um, but then they started to oppress the people because they were growing in such a great number. They used them as slaves. And so God miraculously brought them out of Egypt. And um, Egypt, Egypt's kind of a mixed bag in the Old Testament. Sometimes um, Israel is able to look to it again as um, for safety, but usually they're looking to Egypt for safety because they don't trust God to provide safety. So God wipes Egypt out as a national power or as a worldwide power in order to show Israel, you can't depend on it, Egypt. You have to depend on me. So here in Ezekiel 29, we get, um, we see that happening. It says, I will turn the fortunes of Egypt and make them return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowest of the kingdoms, and it will never again lift itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations. Ezekiel 30, 25 Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fail. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the land of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. When I scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands, then they will know that I am the Lord. So we've got another power dynamic happening. Babylon is conquering in the south. It takes over the, um, the political power of Egypt. Up in the north, you've got the power of Assyria growing. It's in the, uh, both are, uh, or actually Assyria comes directly from Nimrod. Nimrod planted Nineveh, the city, and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. But Assyria is taking over the northern kingdoms of Israel. At the time, Babylon is conquering the southern uh, region of Egypt. And so Assyria grows in power before Babylon is fully grown in power. Um, but Babylon's taking over Egypt while Assyria is the now new ruling power. And so that in 722 BC, Assyria took power over Israel. In Isaiah 10:23, we read, uh, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Excuse me. The Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. The issue with Assyria was that God used it providentially to punish the ten northern kingdoms of Israel, but they overstepped what uh, God had divinely, in his divine permission, had allowed them to do, and they began to abuse Israel in a way that he had not allowed and so his wrath came against Assyria as well. He used them to punish Israel, but then he punished them for the way that they punished Israel. In Nahum chapter three, actually Nahum one through three, you get this big long destruction of 
um, Assyria, especially focusing on Nineveh. In the same way as in Revelation 17 and 18, we get this big view of the destruction of Babylon. It says here, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? God is going to wipe them out. And Babylon becomes the major power between the uh, 722 exodus of um, the 10 northern kingdoms into Assyria, which was a bit more of a restructuring than a full exodus. They took prisoners and then they planted Gentiles in the land. That's where we get the, uh, the uh, Samaritans in, uh, in the gospel period. Those were those Assyrians that were planted in the land of Israel mixing with the Jews and it corrupted the Jewish race. And so down in Judah, they don't accept the Samaritans as full Jews because they're part Assyrian. Uh, and then of course you've got Galilee up north, which is split. <clears throat> and so here by uh, 586, Babylon is now the world power and they are used to divinely discipline the Southern kingdoms of um, Judah and Benjamin. So in Daniel 1, 1 through 2, we see that power dynamic. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord God gave, or the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, the, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, God's going to give Nebuchadnezzar a bit of a grace period in coming to understand who he is as the God of um, Israel, the God of or the creator God. Nebuchadnezzar is going to react differently than the king of Assyria did. And so God is going to uh, not only give grace to Nebuchadnezzar, but he's going to actually give him the kingdom of the earth. It's been uh, passed out of the hands of Israel, the uh, the seat of David can't go to anyone who is not from the house of David, but the house of David is at this point left in shambles, and it won't be built up again until the prophecy of Isaiah 11 is filled, the branch that comes out of David, which is Jesus Christ. So this begins the time of the Gentiles, that reign of the Gentile kingdoms over the earth, because the reign of Solomon has been brought down. So in Daniel 2.37, uh, uh, this prophecy of the Gentile kingdoms is given to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is called on to interpret his vision. And he says, you, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the son of man, sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky. He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. So this kingdom is not the mediatorial kingdom that he has given to Israel, but a kingdom will rule over the earth. God has given him a divine right of kings to rule over the people of the earth, um, and he expects them to rule, recognizing him as the authority over them, him as the sovereign God, 
Nebuchadnezzar does this. Uh, when we get to Daniel, we're going to look at this uh, a kind of a decree, a constitution that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar being this leader of the Gentile world, all kings that come out of the Gentile world are supposed to come under that agreement. So that even includes our own past presidents, Biden, Trump, Obama, they are all have the prerogative from God who handed power down to Nebuchadnezzar, who then passes out this Gentile rule um, to all subsequent Gentile rulers. They're all under this obligation from God to recognize him as the sovereign God. Uh, so we will look at that when we get to Daniel a bit more. But here we see God having a sort of intercalation, just like he has the church age that intercedes between the kingdom offers to Israel. Here he has the time of the Gentiles that intercedes between an actual ruling power in Israel. Between David and Jesus, he gives the kingdoms of this world to Nebuchadnezzar and then the subsequent rulers, these seven kings that we're looking at. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is spared. Uh, the kingdom is given to him because he humbles himself and he worships the God of Israel. But his nephew, uh, Belshazzar, is, or Balthazar, uh, uh, Belshazzar, is not as um, willing to be humbled. And so God uh, divinely uh, takes down his rule. And in fact, Babylon is taken over without, um, without destroying anything in the city. It is simply besieged. The king is killed and the kingdom is taken over. Um, Cyrus writes about this on the Cyrus scroll we looked at a few months ago now, that he was able to take over the entire kingdom of Babylon without destroying anything. Um, but God uh, wrote in an invisible, with an invisible hand on the wall. That's the uh, writing on the wall in Daniel 5. And again, mm -hmm. Daniel is called in to interpret this. And by this time, you kind of get a hint that he's been forgotten and ignored. Uh, and they're like, oh, wait, wasn't there a guy who's able to do this? So they bring him in, and this is his interpretation of the writing on the wall that many uh, tekel peris. The many uh, means that God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. The tekel means you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And the peris is your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the Medes are specifically the ones that we see who will destroy the kingdom of Babylon in the Antichrist's day. That's all of those uh, Stan countries that are just north, um, like the Tajikistan and all those. It says that that region is the region that comes down and will actually destroy Babylon. We looked at that when we did the, um, those two parts on the Battle of Armageddon, that the Gentile powers are going to come from the north and actually destroy the city. But it is that kingdom which receives from Babylon that uh, rulership over the earth. That's the fourth kingdom. We're going to move a little faster here through these last ones. Daniel uh, 5.30, it says the same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king. Chaldea is the same as Babylon. The Chaldean king, uh, so Darius the Mede, received the kingdom at uh, about the age of 62. This kingdom is the same kingdom that is ruling in the book of Esther, where we see King Haman, um, who is a, uh, this Medo-Persian ruler, 
and his, uh, well, Haman wasn't as bad necessarily as his right-hand man, um, who was really the, the big issue in the book of Esther, but we see that they're ruling Israel with a heavy hand. Um, so it says here, Haman said to, uh, oh, Haman was the bad one, King Ahaz, Ahazarias, uh, Ahazarus, um, Haman was his bad right-hand man. Uh, says there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom, speaking here of the Hebrews. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So uh, it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry um, on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. And so the rest of the book of Esther is about how uh, Esther wins the favor of the king and uh, <clears throat> ends up saving her, uh, her uncle Mordecai, um, who Haman was specifically trying to have put to death. So all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his uh, the whole nation. So we see that this one was spared for quite a while, but eventually it did give over to the kingdom of Greece. And we see this in Daniel's vision in uh, chapter 8. Now this comes right after that vision of the four beasts, and this um, tells him of the next transition to power. He sees a vision of two beasts, uh, one ram and one goat, and this is that going to be the power shift from Persia, which was the current ruler in uh, Daniel 8, and that shift of power to Greece. So it says, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king of Greece. <clears throat> that kingdom gave over to Rome just a few years before Christ was born. Uh, I think it was 162 years or so. Uh, and it had a lot to do with the power shifting in Israel as well, the uh, Hasmonean dynasty in Israel, but eventually Rome uh, exercised its power over Israel and annexed it, and that was the reigning power um, in John's day was Rome, and Rome wouldn't be overthrown until about uh, 380-something A.D., uh, and it wouldn't really be overthrown so much as dispersed into the Holy Roman Empire, um, which kind of fizz fizzled after Charlemagne. But those are the five kingdoms that have fallen, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece, the one that is Rome, and then the one uh, that is to come is the false Messiah's kingdom, and we see that that has two parts. So five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Uh, this probably has to do with the shortness of his reign. We see in Revelation 12, 12, at the midpoint of the tribulation, when Satan is cast down to the earth, 
that he comes out and he has great wrath because he knows that he has only a short time. And as we come to find out in multiple different places, this is um, 1260 days or 42 months, um, three and a half years. So it's a short time, much shorter than the other kingdoms. Uh, so it says the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Um, so that probably is why they have separated these seven mountains and the seven kings. You've got the kingdoms, seven kingdoms, but you've got uh, in the seventh one, you've got a switch in the king where it's still the same king, but it's a different dynamic. Um, so you have where it's the person, the false Christ, and then you actually have Satan ruling over because he is now indwelled. Um, the false Christ. So it is a different kingdom exercising power in a different way. Um, and so it's it's the seventh king, but it's actually an eighth. It's Satan exercising his power directly over the earth.